Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am your host today, Al, and the topic this week is going to be a retrospective on some of the video games produced by LJN for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, before I move on to today's topic, uh, just a quick announcement about the podcast itself. Currently, I offer the podcast through podbean.com. You can also download it through iTunes, and it is also available through the uh, podcast app for the iPhone, iPod, and iPad. I also offer the podcast as a direct download on my online store at drivethroughstuff.com. Now, I've decided that probably around the end of April, early May, somewhere in that area, I will most likely discontinue offering the podcast through drivethroughstuff.com. However, I'm always receptive to any ideas or suggestions or input from my listeners. So if you prefer to download the podcast through drivethroughstuff instead of listening to it or downloading it through iTunes or Podbean, please contact me and let me know. If uh, someone contacts me and says, hey, I prefer to receive the podcast through DriveThruStuff, then I will keep offering it through uh, the DriveThruStuff.com online store. Now, uh, easiest way to contact me is if you go to my website, POIGamestudio.com, there's a contact form there. Or another way you can contact me is if you stop by um, Facebook and visit Point of Insanity Game Studios page on Facebook, uh, please feel free to leave a comment there. And like I said, if anyone contacts me and says, hey, please keep offering it through Drive Through Stuff, I will continue to offer the podcast through Drive Through Stuff. But on to today's topic, and that is a retrospective of the video games produced by LJN for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, one thing that's actually, I should clear up right away, I'm, I've already made a mistake in uh, how I've credited LJN here. They actually didn't really do any of the programming for a lot of the games that are attributed to them. They served primarily as a publisher for NES games, and they did have a reputation, so to speak, of having really poor quality games. Now, the reason that LJN was the this video game publisher, it had to do with Nintendo's licensing uh, policies back then. See, back in the day, uh, Nintendo didn't want a single company making too many games for the NES. So what they did is they limited... Uh, the number of titles that a third-party publisher could release in a year. And there were some companies that did find ways to get around that. Uh, LJN was actually owned by Acclaim Entertainment at that time. So there were a lot of games that uh, Acclaim developed or had some say in, and rather than publish it under Acclaim Entertainment, they published it under LJN. So in a way, it is kind of unfair to blame LJN for these games because, like I said, they really didn't have too much of a hand in making these games. 
So they kind of got a bad rap in that regards. And Acclaim, Eljan, they weren't the only company to do this. The other notable exception that I can, or actually not exception, but the other notable example I can think is Konami, uh, one of my personal favorite third-party game developers. They had a division called Ultra Games, which would go on to release uh, things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I know, of course, they've... Uh, they, some of the names of their other games have fallen out of my head. I'm sure they'll come back to me. I think they also did Metal Gear. Uh, they also produced Skate or Die, which, again, is another one of my favorite games. But, like I said, they actually were not uh, their own uh, game designer. They were just publishing games that were made by Konami. Now, LJN as I said, it's gotten kind of this bad rap of making really low, poor quality games. Now, if you're any of you are a fan of the Angry Video Game Nerd, or another video game reviewer I've seen, uh, the Irate Gamer, they've done videos reviewing these games to tell people just how exactly how bad they were. And I'm sure that there's other video game reviewers out there on YouTube that have also done reviews of uh, LJN video games to talk about how bad they were. So before we examine some of these games by LJN, let's take a moment to talk about what exactly makes a game a bad game. Now, bad video games have been around ever since video games were first made, and as long as companies produce video games, there will be bad video games. But what makes a game worthy of being called a bad game? That's kind of a hard question to answer. We all have our different opinions on what makes a game good or what makes a game bad. Sometimes there are games that I really enjoyed, but the critics labeled as being bad. One game that comes to mind is Final Fantasy Mystic Quest for the Super Nintendo. It was pretty much panned by critics back in the day, but honestly, I really enjoyed the game. It, yeah, it wasn't exactly designed to be a very challenging game, and it was pretty easy through most of it, but it had a really good music, and it said it was just kind of a fun game to uh, play every now and then. But no matter where our tastes lie in video games, there's a few things that I think we can all agree greatly limit our enjoyment of a game. Bad graphics, repetitive gameplay, a boring or unoriginal story, annoying music, poor play control, and frustrating levels of difficulty, or in some cases a lack of difficulty. I mean, yeah, you want a game to have a certain amount of challenge, but most people don't really want to cakewalk through an adventure. Because uh, if a game, if you just paid $60 for a game and you're able to finish it in five hours without breaking a sweat, you tend to feel ripped off. So all these games, these factors can make a game, or can lead to a game, rather, being labeled as a bad game. And part of the problem with the games published by LJN is they usually suffered from a few of these uh, these characteristics because it is possible to for a game to have a couple of these characteristics but still not be a bad game you know as long as it's not glitchy or playable 
some things can be forgiven. I mean, I personally do not need ultra-realistic uh, graphics in order to enjoy a video game. Annoying music, well, like I said, I now don't get me wrong, I, I enjoy listening to video game music, but if a, a video game does have bad music, I can always ignore it or turn the volume down and I'm good to go. But, like I said, when a game has several of these, or all of these characteristics, then it does get very hard to enjoy that particular game. Now we're going to take you back to the late 80s, early 90s, back when I was in middle school, high school. And this is when I was, been, again, a big fan of the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. I admit, I've pretty much always been a Nintendo fanboy. Back then, if we wanted to find if a game was bad, we had some of the same resources that gamers today have. Uh, for example, magazines. Video game magazines like Nintendo Power, or Electronic Gaming Monthly, or Game Informer usually helped us decide if a game was going to be right for us. But probably one of the best resources was your friends. You know, occasionally your friend might have a game that you're interested in playing, so you go over to his house, try it, maybe borrow it for a couple days, and you could again tell if it's a game that you want to invest in. Now some stores had demo stations set up, and this is something I really haven't seen in non-video game stores today, but at some department stores I used to go to, they did have demo stations. Uh, there's a couple that come to mind. Now when I was back in high school, I used to work at Sears in Brookfield Square, uh, which is a shopping mall down there. And there used to be a store there called Woolworths. And Woolworths was a department store, and I remember they had a Nintendo Entertainment System set up in their, their gaming section. And, you know, again, they had usually a game they would swap out every now and then that you could give a try to. Now, since I worked at Sears, whenever I went by the video game department there, uh, they had a Sega Genesis set up, and they there's only two games I remember ever seeing there: uh, Toe Jam and Earl, and Sonic the Hedgehog. So occasionally, when I was on my break, I would go to the video game department and uh, play usually the first one or two levels of Sonic. I've never been very good at that game. I, I usually had a hard time getting past uh, the first few levels. So again, that was always helpful. Now, if you had an arcade, again, the mall I worked at, we had Aladdin's Castle. And one of my favorite games they had there was Play Choice 10, which was a great boon for Nintendo fanboys like me. Uh, see, what the Play Choice 10 does, did is it had several NES games. And when you put in your quarter, you paid for a certain number of minutes. And then you, during that time, you could play as many games as you wanted to. So you might start by playing maybe a, you, know, you might play Super Mario Brothers for a few minutes. And then if you got bored with that game, you could reset it. And then you could choose like Metroid or Pro Wrestling or Baseball, uh, any of those early NES games. But... One of my favorite places to go whenever I was interested in a game was a store called Funko Land. Uh, unfortunately, they're, I don't think they're in business anymore. I believe that they're, they were bought out by GameStop, but it was a wonderful store. It 
was probably one of my favorite places to go back when I was a kid. Uh, of course, they sold you know the the new and used games, but they also had uh, game systems set up around the store. You know, so by the the Genesis section, they had a Sega Genesis set up, and they had a Super Nintendo set up, and uh, an NES set up, and they had you know a game plugged in that you could just go up and play and try. But was really what was really cool is let's say you saw a game in stock that you thought looked kind of interesting. You could ask one of the employees if you could try the game, and they'd take it and they'd pop it into the uh, into the the system and you know let you play it for a few minutes. That's one of the things I liked about the store. The one I went to, they always had really nice people there, and you know they didn't have any problem if you wanted to sit there and you know play a game or two for uh for about five ten minutes. Now I know that. Video game stores today will sometimes have demo stations set up. Uh, I believe GameStop usually has one set up for uh, Nintendo Wii. Uh, that's actually how I got into Super Smash Bros. Brawl. I was at uh, a GameStop, and again, they had the demo of it set up, and you know, went and played it. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I got hooked into that game pretty quickly. So that was another place you could go if there was a game you wanted to try, but... Maybe you hadn't seen any reviews for it, or none of your friends had it. Now, moving on, let's talk about LJN. Now, as I mentioned before, they had a reputation of making games that really were very poor quality. One of the things they did is they published games that were usually based on uh, licensed properties. I don't think they ever really published any games that were original. The vast majority of them were based on movies or comics or TV shows. They also had ones that weren't based on uh, movies or comics. Uh, I know they made several games for the WWF. Uh, they also had sport games. I know they had NFL and uh, Major League Baseball uh, another one that they made, which, again, not really a sport, but was actually based on a, a brand of sport clothing, uh, Town & Country Surf Designs. Now, I'm not sure if uh, TNC is still around, but back in the day, they made a line of clothing that was aimed primarily at skateboarders, uh, skaters, and surfers. And in addition to... Uh, clothing, I believe they actually originally started out uh, making surfboards as well. So I'll, I will be talking about uh, Town & Country Surf Designs, the, the video game, uh, later on in the, the, the show today. But most again, most of their games were movie or comic book tie-ins. Now, when you make a video game based on movies and comic books, they're are some certain challenges uh, that go along with uh, each genre. Now first, when you make a game based on a movie, you have to decide how you're going to approach it because it's all, you already have the basic plot of the movie, so you know what characters you can use, uh, you know some of the things that you can have happen during the game, but you usually have to decide how much you want to deviate from the game. And that's something that can be uh, met with uh, mixed reviews. Because sometimes, I mean, I've seen reviews for games that 
uh, deviated from the movie quite a bit, but were actually still very popular, very well received. The uh, best example I can think of off the top of my head is Willow, which was made by Capcom for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Because Willow uh, had you doing things that uh, the characters never did in the movie and introduced a lot of new characters. And uh, one of the biggest differences is in the NES game, uh, Willow uses a sword and shield and a variety of magic items, which he doesn't do in the movie. However, even though it deviates from the, the movie a lot, it's still a really fun game. Now, if you're making a video game based on a comic book series, you usually have tons of characters and villains and ideas and plot points that you can work with. So, unlike a movie, you're usually not limited to a specific story arc. For example, it's certainly possible to make an X-Men video game based on some of their more famous arcs like uh, the Inferno arc or the Dark Phoenix saga or the, uh, I think there was one, Fall of the Mutants and uh, Days of Future Past. You know, you could certainly make a good video game based on any of those stories. Or you could make a totally unique game with an original story that just happens to use Colossus and Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Longshot, Dazzler, and whoever else you have the, the licensing rights to use. So when you're making a game based on a comic book series, it's easier to make a standalone game. Now, of course, when you are making a game based on a movie, it is always possible to have it more of a spin-off where you know it uses the characters and uh, elements from the movie, but it doesn't. It's not intended to be a game based on the movie itself. It's not following that movie's story or that movie's plot. Now, as we move to talking about some of these games themselves, one of the things that uh, is worth noting is at least from my personal perspective, is how, in a way, it can be kind of challenging looking back at these games. I remember I enjoyed some of these games back when I was a kid, though a lot of people today are very critical of them, and perhaps myself included, it's fair to say. Why were we less critical back then? Now, I suppose it's possible because we didn't have as many games to uh, choose from back then, so when you've you know only got you know a few dozen or so games that, that you have access to uh it, it's easier to just kind of say okay this is what i have this is what i'm going to play and i'm going to enjoy it now another thing that uh, i think is a factor as to why we were less critical of these games back then is because the video game technology really hasn't advanced uh, it didn't advance as much back then, so we didn't have a lot of the fancy options, you know, like online multiplayer and downloadable content and multiple endings uh, that we usually enjoy uh, today. So since we had fewer options, because we weren't used to that, we were content with games that were fairly simple, uh, like a game that, you know, might only have four or five stages that... Once you knew the secrets of that game, you could usually beat in about 10 minutes. Where, of course, nowadays, if you had a game that you could beat in 10 minutes, and as I said, if you paid 40, 50 bucks for that, you're probably going to be pretty upset. So, the first game I'd like to talk about, 
this is one that I will say is probably the most disappointing video game I've ever played. And that was the Uncanny X-Men for the uh, NES. Now, when I'm, I remember this game because I was really excited when I heard about it. Uh, back when I was around middle school, early high school, I was a big X-Men fan and I did collect the comics back then. So when I found out that there was going to be a game released for the NES featuring the X-Men, I was excited. And I remember saving up my money for my paper route until I was able to finally go to the, the game store in the mall and I was finally able to pick that game up and I was so excited to be able to go home and play the X-Men and, and I was all looking forward to being able to play as Wolverine and uh, they also had Nightcrawler, Colossus, Iceman, Storm and Cyclops and I thought this is gonna be great! Now I remember when I popped it in the title screen music was pretty catchy and graphics for the character portraits weren't that bad either. Then I actually started playing the game, and that's when the the disappointment began. For starters, uh, there are... Uh, there's not a lot of variety to the game. You're just in kind of generic-looking settings, uh, running around, punching random pieces of garbage that are flying you know, rounded towards you. So that was one of my first disappointments because, okay, by the time this game was released in 1989, uh, the X-Men series had been around for uh, over 20 years. Now, I know it had been around for a while. And this is the best that they could come up with. Let's drop the X-Men in some bland, boring-looking settings and have them run around attacking random pieces of flying garbage. The other thing that really kind of annoyed me about the game is you had to play it two-player whether you liked it or not. Now, if you were going to have a friend over to play, well, that was fine. But even if you just wanted to play a one-player game, you were forced to choose a computer a computer partner. And while well, you could switch back and forth, so let's say you chose Storm and Colossus, you know, if you wanted to, you could go from, you know, Storm to Colossus and back again. But the problem is the AI for the the computer partner wasn't very good. Basically, it just kind of randomly moved back and forth, punching or shooting things until the enemies killed it. It, it, they tried to simulate the powers. Um, I mean, the, they, they did okay with, like, uh, Storm. She could shoot lightning bolts, and she could fly around. Uh, Iceman, he could also fly, which when I say fly, what, what you're doing is you're basically pressing the jump button, and then you use that to uh, glide around, and you move a little bit faster. Uh, he could shoot bolts of ice, and then you had uh, Cyclops who could jump and shoot uh, his eye beams of course Wolverine uh, you really didn't get his healing factor uh, all he did was just punch and I think he had a really high defense and that was really about it uh, same thing with Colossus he had a ton of hit points but uh, that's about all he had going for him he couldn't even jump uh, Nightcrawler again pathetically weak and no vitality 
and in order to simulate his teleporting ability, he could basically walk through walls. But when he walked through walls, he lost life. So, uh, and I think um, you even lost life when you were flying as well. But perhaps one of the most frustrating things about the game was how you had to access the last stage. Now, there were a total of five stages. When you beat each of the four stages, you know, you came to the end, rather, there was a boss. Uh, the bosses were Sabretooth, uh, Juggernaut, I believe, was one, the White Queen, and Boomerang. Which I did not understand why they put Boomerang in there, because, as my memory serves me, Boomerang was primarily a, an opponent for Spider-Man. Uh, so what he was doing in a game about the X-Men, I have no clue. But you had to be careful, because after you beat the one of the stages, you saw some text appear on the screen. Some of the uh, text was in different colors. Now, I had a black and white TV to play my video games on back then, so that was kind of a problem because it was kind of hard to tell that there were th this different colored text. And I admit I cheated. I did some internet research here. Uh, to This was the message you got if you took everything down. The last mission can be reached from the mission select screen by pressing select and seek the advice of the label to make it to the final mission. And on the uh, cartridge for the NES, there was a little message. Now here's part of the problem. The cartridge is in the NES, so if you want to look at that, that message on there, which is actually quite small and kind of hard to see, you had to take your game out. So also you could take the stages in any order you wanted to. So if you took in the wrong order, then guess what? You didn't know what the heck you were supposed to do. And then once you finally uh, did manage to make it to the last stage, you fought Magneto. And actually, you didn't even have to fight him or any of the bosses. Once you got to the boss, a countdown started. And you had to pretty much escape the stage, so you didn't even have to fight the boss. And then, of course, once you did beat the game, you just got a screen of text. So, like I said, very disappointed in that game. And I will say it is one of the worst games I've ever played. There's nothing really redeeming about X-Men uh, that I have to say about it. Now, another one of the movie games I remember they made, uh, Back to the Future. Now, this one tried to follow the movie. Uh, the plot of this one is you are, of course, Marty McFly, and you are trying to go through uh, the city to get to different locations where you would uh, do different mini-games. And, of course, the, uh, the, the, the plot was to make sure that your parents fell in love so they would get married and you, you could go on and be born. Like, I know there was one game where uh, you had to throw milkshakes at bullies that were charging at you. And there was another one where you had to, your mom was throwing kisses at you and you had to block uh, the, the incoming kisses with a book. And there was another one where you were at the dance and you were basically playing guitar by catching these notes. And then at the end you had to uh, drive the DeLorean and hit this right, just the right spot going 88 miles per hour. Now in addition to the difficulty of the game, uh, one of the things that was so annoying, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to to think this, but it had some of the most annoying video game music you'll ever hear. Uh, look up 
video footage of Back to the Future for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and you'll see what we had to deal with uh, back then. Now, uh, well, before I forget about the X-Men, I know they also made a game based on just Wolverine. This one was a little bit better than the, uh, than the, the first X-Men game. Again, you just played Wolverine. Um, I believe Havoc, Psylocke, and Jubilee made appearances, but I don't remember ever seeing them when I was playing the few times I had played the game. Again, side-scrolling platformer, and here's where the game really sucked. Most of the time, you're running around punching. Now, of course, if you want to, you can press the select button, out come the claws. However, whenever you use your claws, you lose life. That makes no sense whatsoever. One of the things they did incorporate that made sense, they did have a berserk meter. Because uh, Wolverine, as I recall in, in the comics, he was known to go berserk. He would enter these berserker rages if he got hurt really badly. And uh, they tried to simulate in that in the game, when you got injured, your berserk meter went up. Um, also, there were uh, these bottles that looked kind of like a beer bottle. When you grabbed those, I, I think it re refilled some of your life, but it also increased your berserk meter. And the problem when you go berserk, well, it was a two-edged sword. You were invincible. However, while you were trying to move around, every now and then you just randomly started punching. So it could be a real pain in the butt when you're in an area that required a lot of precision jumping, which was about probably 90% of the game. On a bright side, the graphics were pretty good. And the music wasn't that bad either. I do recall enjoying the music for the, the Wolverine video game. Next we go to Punisher, another one of their video game uh, based on a comic book character. Now this one was kind of different. You were, it was a rail shooter mostly. You, you saw Punisher from behind in the front of the screen. And again, he moved from the, the left side of the screen to the right or actually the, the screen scrolled, and you know, basically anyone who moved, you shot them. Uh, this game, it actually had pretty good graphics. Well, actually, Punisher himself looked pretty good. Uh, everything else uh, looked pretty subpar, even for the 8-bit era. One of the things I remember about this game that was problematic was the play control, because not only did you have to move Punisher left and right, you were also moving the, the cursor around that would tell you where you were going to be shooting. And again, it, it took a lot of getting used to because there were times where, okay, if you moved too much, you would, of course, throw off your target so you couldn't hit anything. One of the things that disappointed me about the game, though, was there was no background music. The only time there was music, uh, at least from what I recall, there, there may have been music when you got to the bosses, but during the stage itself, Sometimes there would be a saxophone player, and you know when you were uh, when he was on the screen, there'd be some music that would play. But of course, once he left the screen, the music stopped. Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was another game that, well, this is kind of unique among uh, the LJN games because it, LJN did actually make some games that had some decent concepts. The problem was they were just very poorly executed. Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and some of the other ones that I'm going to talk about next 
these all fall in that category, at least in my opinion. Again, they did have some kind of interesting ideas. It's just they weren't uh, they weren't executed very well. So I don't know if they maybe put too much of a strain on the programmers where they're like, okay, we want this game based on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to be released in the next few months. Uh, make it so. Or if they just had, you know, maybe newer or people who maybe just didn't care about the game they were programming. But Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for the Nintendo uh, wasn't really based on the movie itself. Instead, it was a separate adventure where uh, you had to travel through time and there were different historical figures you met with, like uh, I believe there was Al Capone and uh, George Washington, uh, Sitting Bull. But when you talk to these guys, you um, had to have a historical artifact to give them. Now, in order to find these artifacts, you just had to kind of jump in or run into random parts of the screen. Now, there, it did have some uh, inventory, I guess you could say. There, I remember there were items you collected, uh, like keys and coins. Uh, the reason you needed those is because if you... Uh, people got mad at you and they started running at you, and if they caught you, you'd be thrown in jail. So in order to get out of jail, you either had to have a key or you had to have a coin that I think you could use to bribe the guard. Uh, it's been a while since I played the game, so I don't remember exactly how it worked, but I know that was one of the mechanics. There were also pudding cups you could find. Again, a nod to the movie because when they're stranded in time, they give all the historical figures pudding cups to eat. Uh, and again, if people were chasing after you, you could throw a pudding cup and they'd try to go after that instead. Uh, another thing you could collect were boom boxes. The game really didn't have much music. Uh, when you first started a stage, there was a musical theme that would play for uh, like 30 seconds or a minute. And again, not very long. And then uh, it would stop for the rest of the stage. Uh, the only other time there was really music that I can remember, anyway, is when you used a boombox, it would play some rock music and it would cause everyone on the screen to start dancing, and that's another way you could get rid of people who were chasing after you. Now, again, it was just very poorly executed because you always felt you were wandering around. There weren't any real clues as to where you were, where you could find stuff. Again, at least that, that I recall, graphics were pretty average for the time. I wasn't very impressed with the play control. Again, for the most part, it was pretty repetitive. You were just walking around. Uh, I think you'd enter buildings every now and then. And I think there was a section where you could ride a horse or go on a canoe every now and then. But again, not really much variety in gameplay. Now, the next one I'd like to talk about, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this was an interesting one because they actually did change the game. I remember seeing an ad for this game. I don't remember if it was in a video game magazine or if it was just a snippet from uh, Nintendo Power, but the original plot of Nightmare on Elm Street was you would actually get to play as Freddy. And your goal is you had to stop the people of the town from finding your bones and destroying them. So I'm assuming that this game would have you running around killing people, you know, killing teenagers and, and their parents, which, you know, again, you got to understand that at this time in their history, Nintendo always had a very squeaky clean image that they tried to maintain. 
they had a lot of censorship in their games. And uh, again, usually whenever a game came to one of their systems, if there was a lot of blood or gore, they would take that out. You know, again, Josh Hadley and I, we talked about that in our episode on arcade to home games uh, when we were talking about Mortal Kombat. Again, Mortal Kombat for the Super Nintendo uh, took out the blood and altered a lot of the fatalities so there were no more ripping people's spines out and such. So the game we did get, uh, this one was a side-scroller uh, with a platformer, and again, you did have to collect Freddy's bones, but the big selling point for this one was up to four people could play. Uh, there was a, an accessory for the Nintendo back then called the Four Score that you could use to plug four different controllers in, and I know there were a few games that were made for it, um, in addition to Friday the 13th, I'm sorry, not Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I think there was like a racing game that was uh, made for it. Uh, another one I remember playing that I actually had a lot of fun with, uh, one of my friends back then had, I think it was called Super Spike V-Ball, where uh, you had, a, it was two-on-two volleyball, and that one was a lot of fun. But in Nightmare on Elm Street, it was often compared to Castlevania II Simon's Quest because it kind of had a night and day mechanic when, you know, every now and then you risked falling asleep. And when you fell asleep, the enemies became stronger. Um, however, when you were in this dreamland, you could actually get uh, power-ups, dream warrior abilities, I think they were called. Uh, the only one I remember was an acrobat ability, which I think let you jump higher and also let you throw javelins. And I'm sure there were others. I just don't remember what they were. Now, so again, maybe if it was executed a little better, it probably could have been a lot more enjoyable. But it wasn't horribly bad. Again, nowhere near as bad as X-Men or Back to the Future or, or Wolverine. Uh, along the same lines horror movies. Uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, this one wasn't based on any specific one. It was just kind of a generic one where uh, we had a bunch of counselors at Camp Crystal Lake and you had to, of course, try to find and defeat Jason. Now this one was kind of interesting because it did have a couple different uh, ways to play the game. First, there was a side-scrolling part of the game where you would you'd walk around exploring camp and there, were, there was a forested area where you could try to find the place where Jason kept his mother's head. Uh, and if you defeated Jason's mother's um, head, she left a weapon or an item for you. But another part of the game was you had to enter cabins. Because, of course, that's where the kids were. And every now and then you'd hear an alarm because Jason was uh, attacking the kids in that cabin. So you had a certain amount of time in order to, you know, to get to that cabin before he killed one of the children or one of the counselors. Now, the thing that made this game kind of frustrating, though, well, let me back up a little bit. One of the things that was actually kind of cool is when you were in the cabins, it was 3D. You know, so you'd search around the cabin for things, but sometimes Jason would attack you while you were in the cabin. And since it was that 3D perspective, again, you had your little character in the front of the screen, and then you had this big Jason. So it was kind of like Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, where you had to move and dodge around, uh, because Jason would, he'd 
pace around and then he'd come up and he'd try to punch you and you know of course if he you met him on the on the trails it was a side scroll and he would just come and start chucking machetes at you now the thing that was really kind of poorly executed about the game which is a shame because it did have potential there were six different characters that you could play as three males and three females however they were more or less just kind of uh, reflections of each other uh, like the two characters that you pretty much always ended up using were Mark and Chrissy uh, they could both run really fast and they could jump really high the other characters well there was another uh, the, the second set of characters were kind of average, and then there was the third set, which uh, I believe their names were George and Debbie, who pretty much stunk because they had the worst jumping ability and they were pretty slow. For some reason, the only real advantage they had is there was a part of the game where you could uh, you had to go on the lake in a rowboat because you had to row to a, a cabin. And for some reason, some of the counselors could row a little faster. I mean, maybe if they made the characters a little more balanced, it would it would have worked a little better. But for the most part, like I said, Mark and Chrissy were the only ones you were going to use. And if they were, once they were killed, you were pretty much screwed. Now, the next one was Jaws. And this one, again, I did kind of like. Uh, it had a some parts of it that were poorly executed, but the graphics were okay. The music was okay, as I remember it. And in a way, it was almost kind of like a role-playing game. You had this map, and there were two port cities. Basically, what you did is you sailed back and forth between these two ports. And whenever you were sailing around, occasionally you'd see a little shark fin come up out of the water, and that's where Jaws was. But you would just like a random encounter in like Final Fantasy uh, you would all of a sudden stop and there's this message that would appear on the screen that said we've hit something from this point the game would go into the water where you'd swim around and you'd shoot uh, sharks and jellyfish and uh, manta rays and when you you shot them they would drop shells now it was important to get these shells because once you got to a port, you could pow you could get power-ups. Uh, the first one you got was the uh, was some sort of tracking device that would start making a noise or whenever Jaws was close. And then other than that, it was pretty much kind of like a grind in a role-playing game. You would just go back and forth collecting shells, and then because whenever you went to one of the towns, your uh, your your power would go up. And, of course, you wanted to make sure that you uh, got your power as high as possible, because otherwise it was really, really difficult to defeat Jaws. There was also a mini-sub you could get, which, as I recall, all that really did was it allowed you to take one hit before dying. One of the things that was frustrating about is when you met Jaws, you had him for a certain amount of time. So you had to try to inflict as much damage upon Jaws as you possibly could. After a while, he would escape. And then the next time you meet him, he would have healed some of his some of the damage you did to him. So that's why it was so important to power up your weapon because if you really didn't, if you weren't very strong, you weren't really doing much damage to him, and uh, pretty much he'd recover whatever you inflicted on him. Here's where the game was kind of frustrating. Sometimes you're just swimming around minding your own business, and then all of a sudden the game would switch to this mini game where you're 
flying around in a plane, dropping bombs on jellyfish. What, might you ask, does dropping bombs from a plane onto jellyfish have to do with Jaws and trying to kill a shark? Your guess is as good as mine. So, like I said, though, it wasn't too bad of a game. Uh, once you finally got Jaws to uh, zero health, uh, then you switched to a, a first-person perspective on the boat where you had to try to skew Jaws with the boat. Uh, and then from there, you the game was done. Now, a little fun fact. Uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but uh, there have been parallels drawn between Jaws and the uh, ancient Babylonian uh, myth of Marduk and Tiamat. Now, according to the uh, old epic, the Enuma Elish, uh, Marduk defeats Tiamat by trapping her with the winds and then shooting lightning down her throat, which I guess some people have said it's kind of the uh, paralleled in Jaws when uh, Jaws has the oxygen tank in its mouth and the uh, officer, uh, Brody, I think his name was. I apologize, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, so I don't remember what the uh, the cop's uh, name was. But, you know, again, he says that famous line, Smile, you son of a... And then shoots him and, you know, shoots the oxygen tank and blows the shark up. So, again, a little a little fun fact for you. Well, this brings us to the final game I'd like to talk about. Now, I know that LJN did publish a lot more games for the NES than the ones that I've uh, talked about today. I'm just focusing on the ones that I've, I remember I've played um, or that I've played a significant amount of times. The last one I'd like to talk about is one that I actually really enjoyed. Uh, before I mentioned Town & Country Surf Designs, you know, again, they made surfboards and then also uh, the uh, clothing uh, aimed at surfers and skateboarders. And they made a game called T&C Surf Designs, Wood and Water Rage. There was also a sequel one, T&C 2, Thrilla's Safari, which featured a character, Thrilla the Gorilla. I played that one like a couple times. It was more of, I don't know, I didn't like it. It was like a side-scrolling skateboarding game. Um... It was too difficult for my taste, but anyways, uh, Wooden Water Rage. This one you had a choice of, there were four different characters, and as I recall, these four different characters were uh, the, the company mascots, but the four characters participated in one of two events. The first event was called a Street Skate Session, which was basically skateboarding down a street, and there were different obstacles you had to try to avoid or jump over. And when you played the, the street skate session, you played as either Joe Cool, who was a guy that uh, wore sunglasses, or Tiki Man, a guy wearing a, a tiki mask. The second event was called the uh, Big Wave Encounter, which was a surfing game. Now, I don't know what it is. For some reason, surfing games just never really seem to translate well to the to video games at least the ones I've played, but when you were in the, the big wave encounter, you played as either Thrilla Gorilla or this cat in a tuxedo. Again, what a cat in a tuxedo has to do with surfing, I don't know. That, that was kind of weird, but anyways, uh, the 
play control for the big wave encounter was pretty tricky. It's I remember one of the buttons shifted your weight forward, the other shifted it back, and pretty much your goal was to survive until you reached the, the beach. Uh, the third option was called Wooden Water Rage. This was where you uh, shifted back and forth between uh, the two events. So you would choose whether you wanted to be Joe Cool and Thrilla Gorilla or the Cat Guy and Tiki Man, and you'd play the Street Skate Session, then you'd do Wooden Water Rage, the Street Skate Gate Session, and again, you'd just keep alternating until you died. The graphics were okay, but it actually had pretty good music for the time. It was a surf rock uh, style uh, sound, or surf rock style uh, song that... The, towards the end, sounded actually kind of similar to the uh, Double Dragon theme. But that, again, that one I really enjoyed. And I lied when I said that was the last game I was going to talk about, because I remember there was one more I wanted to mention, and that was the Karate Kid. Now, this is one that, uh, I don't know, I, I think it did have potential. It just, again, wasn't, uh, wasn't executed very well. It did have variety. Uh, this was you started out at, at a karate tournament where you had to defeat like I think it was like three or four opponents, and then from there it went to the part in uh, one of the movies where uh, Daniel and uh, Mr. Miyagi went back to Japan. So there was one uh, there was it was a side scroller now. So there was a a stage where you just fought against a bunch of thugs. There was another one that took place in a hurricane, and I believe the last one was uh, just going to fight the guy that uh, Daniel fights at the end of, I think it's Karate Kid 3, but I'm not sure. So again, that one, it had potential, just wasn't executed very well. Uh, honestly, I would think it would be kind of cool to see that game remade, uh, you know, because you had the you could do like the street, the one-on-one -on -one, uh, street fighting segments, and then you could also do the side-scrolling uh, beat-em-up segments. And also during the side-scrolling segments, uh, occasionally there were houses you could go into, and it there were different mini-games. Like I know there was one where you tried to dodge this thing that looked like a guillotine or a, a giant blade that was swinging back and forth. There was another one where you were trying to catch a uh, fly with chopsticks, and again these just let you earn, uh, you know crane kicks and drum punches, which were basically power-up uh, versions of your normal punches and kicks. Only problem, you can only use them a certain number of times. Well, those are the uh, LJN games that uh, I'm most familiar with that, uh, you know, I played back in the day. Uh, there were some others that I played every now and a little bit of, like uh, WWW Wrestle... I'm sorry, WWF... Uh, WrestleMania Challenge, uh, that one, again, pretty forgettable. Uh, the title screen graphics where it showed the different wrestlers was pretty cool. It's just the gameplay itself just didn't work out very well. I know they also did some other comic book games. Uh, like, I know they had one with uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men teaming up uh, as they tried to escape Murder World. I remember playing that one at Funko Land. Uh, it's been so long since I played it, I don't remember how good or bad it was. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was another one that I remember playing a couple times. And again, I know the Angry Video Game Nerd did a review on that one because, again, it was a pretty uh, subpar game. Uh, another, I know they also did uh, Terminator 2. 
uh, for the NES, and I think they ported a, a Super Nintendo version of the arcade game as well. Now, speaking of Terminator, um, I also know there was a video game for the NES based on the first Terminator movie, which I know it wasn't made by LJN, but it was pretty forgettable. The Again, fun fact, uh, actually Sunsoft was originally supposed to make a Terminator game for the, 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 the NES, but unfortunately they lost the license. Now, Sunsoft decided not to let all their work go to waste, so they ended up uh, changing some graphics, and they released that particular game as a game called Journey to Silius, which, if you've ever played it, it's pretty forgettable by today's standards, but it again, it had a really good musical score, and it was hard, but it was a pretty fun game. Uh, so it would have been kind of interesting to see uh, Journey to Silius as... Uh, a, as a Terminator game, uh, because when you look at some of the graphics in the game, you could see that fitting into Terminator, because the first stage, uh, you're in this ruined uh, post-apocalyptic city, then you go to different underground bases and a factory. Yeah, you could easily see that working with a Terminator game. Well, that's all I have for today. You know, again, certainly uh, take a look at some of the uh, the LJN games, if you want to see some of the games that we had back when I was a kid, I'm sure there's, there's online emulators that you can play them on, um, or if you still have a working Nintendo or Super Nintendo, you know, sometimes you can pick up these games at uh, used video game stores, I mean, if you have one that does deal in the, the older games, but they're kind of interesting to play. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you again for tuning in. Uh, please visit POIGamestudio.com. Feel free to stop by uh, Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. Like the page. Remember, if you have any uh, if you have any uh, ideas for uh, topics you'd like to see me cover in a later uh, show, uh, feel free to either contact me either through the website or through uh, my my Facebook, and I'll be happy to to take those uh, those suggestions into consideration. And don't forget, uh, go to Podbean. You can download the podcast there. And if you do want, if you do currently get the podcast through Drive Through Stuff, if you'd like to see that continue, please let me know, um, and I will continue to offer uh, the podcast through Drive Through Stuff. So thanks for listening. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.